Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. Speaking of people that have had impact on us, uh, there are two, no two more people that do in Silicon Valley uh, right now and for a long time uh, than these two guys. Um, I've known them both for a long, long time um, and have had many, many debates with each of them, especially one of them um, uh, named Mark Andreessen um, uh, for a long time now. So let's bring them out. Mark Andreessen and Reid Hoffman. So, uh, I, I, you know, he was, Mark Andreessen has this habit of texting me really rude things almost continually. Um, and while I was sitting backstage within 10 feet of him, he was tweeting at me about that last talk. So what did you, I think it's very important because I think Facebook is sucking the life out of us. So what do you think? That's the opening question. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, so as a sitting Facebook director, I, dec- I, I, I politely declined to answer. Um, uh, but let me, let, me ge- let me generalize out. So th- this is something that one hears about the internet, uh, a variation on this, that one hears about the internet a lot. So let me start by saying that that, uh, that gentleman, I'm sure he's doing fantastic work, and he, he clearly means well. Um, I really, really deeply disagree with everything he just said. And, and the reason is because, not just because I had some role in, in, in creating the whole thing, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, there, a friend of mine, uh, named Bo Cronin, who works in uh, VR and is uh, an advanced thinker on these things, has a term uh, he uses called reality privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the view from the, uh, from the box seats. It's, the view from the, uh, it's a view from places in the world. That's exactly the kind of view you get uh, from places in the world in which there are super rich real world experiences to have, mm-hmm. right? And so you grow up in an upper middle class community, probably on the coast, you have these incredible schools, you have these incredible enriched activities, you have all these after school. Uh, activities you should do, you've got all these incredible people to talk to, you go to a college campus, you get to, you know, you get to hang out with all these incredible super geniuses. Um, for the 0.0001% of the population of the world who gets to do all those things, then this internet thing is a big step down. For everybody else, the internet is a giant step up, mm-hmm. right? Most people don't have that level of reality privilege. Like most people grow up in, in, in places where there's a, a much higher level of what you might call intellectual deprivation. There's just not that many people around to talk to. There's just not that many interesting things being discussed. There's not that many great experiences to have. Uh, it's hard to learn new things. Um, the schools aren't good. I mean, all kinds, you know, most kids in the world don't even go to school, like or go to school up to the grade four, or grade six or grade eight. It just can't progress beyond that point because there's, there's nothing locally, there's, there's, there's just no local system infrastructure uh, or community to be able to engage uh, on ideas. And so the, the, the internet represents a giant level up on all those topics for most of the world. And I, I think it's a fantastic thing. All right. Okay. Well then, fine. Snapchat for everybody. Um, so, um, so <laughs> Reed, would you like to? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, so, um, look, I think that it's, it's correct that there is various forms of kind of, call it commercial system biases that come out, which is, uh, companies try to say, look, we want to occupy a bunch of time, so we try to figure out how to have that time be occupied. 
And this is the similar truth. This ranges everything from the agriculture industry, which says, well, eat more sugar. Like, you have these commercial biases the whole way through. Mm -hmm. And we adjust to them. Now, that being said, the overall system is better, and we can tune it. Right, and so I think that the, one of the other things frequently is not realizing there's things you can do to change for more of the, the kind of the good and the and and the bad in these things, and and obviously I am less focused at the moment on questions around autoplay mm -hmm. or kind of equivalent, and I'm more focused on questions about like how do we get to discernment of truth and how do we get like you know truth in media and mm -hmm. what is this whole fake news and all you know facts and all that kind of stuff, and that is I think a much more deep issue that I'm focused on at the moment. Well, I think one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to have these two was one, because you make investments, you change companies, you decide, you make a lot of decisions that impact other people. Two, you're, you're super argumentative and debating about what, where that's going, you know, where, where it happened. And I wanted people to get a sense from both of you of how, where innovation's going, how it's going, because you were in, not in charge of it, but very influential to the process, both of you, in different ways. Um, so let's start on that idea that you just talked about, um, which brings in all of social media. I'm not going to just pull out Facebook, but all of social media. The idea, it's something I've been railing on recently for some reason, is the responsibility, the social responsibility, the, the civil responsibility of social media companies and other companies in Silicon Valley to, not, to stop pretending these platforms are benign. Um, so as someone who's created these platforms, each of you, each of you has done your part, how do you look at them now? Because I think they've morphed in ways. Some people think social media has become weaponized. Some people think other things. But that, that t Mark, and Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about this a lot, the idea of the responsibility. So how do you look at where we are right now for Silicon Valley? Why don't we start with you, Mark? Or Reed? How do you look? Okay, Reed. <laughs> I'm happy to start. Okay. Uh, look, so I think that the question is, is that um, we had presumed that broad brush that most people could kind of make assertion of truth within their kind of normal set. And I think actually, in fact, it is somewhat hackable. It's, mm -hmm. it's filter bubbles is one of the things that people talk about a lot in the Valley and kind of how do you make sure that you're not blinded by it and you have communications that go across that. There's questions about um, assertion of, you know, what is the most relevant fact mm -hmm. or in, you know, I, I don't think there is any such thing as an alternative fact. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's, 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 that's uh, George Orwell and, 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 and Aldous Huxley speak. Um, but the, uh, but I think that the question is, okay, how do we help people figure out um, better guideposts to the truth? Because simply being as part of the feed on the screen sometimes uh, is treated as too much of, oh, that must be true. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is good is, is I think the whole industry, and I've been part of a number of conversations about, okay, what are the right ways to do that? And part of the reason why they try to say it's more platform, I don't know if it's trying to say it's benign, is they're trying to say we're not trying to impose a point of view. We're right. trying to help you get to truth. Uh -huh. Or it's kind of classic, like what is the algorithm uh, part of it? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that there's a lot of thinking now about like what are the different uh, ways we can do that. One of the things that I think is, is important is perhaps building that out of the kinds of things we trust. Like we trust other people and can we get to some kind of version of, okay, I know this kind of information is much more contentious. There's a lot of people who disagree with it. This kind of information is, is something that I can rely upon more, and I think we need to get to that kind of scoring system, and I think we need to make it simple enough that it helps unify discourse across the country. Mm -hmm. How do you look at this? So I think truth has become shorthand for things that people on the coasts believe. Okay. 
right. and fake news or false whatever alternative facts has become shorthand for people, the things that people in the center of the country believe. I, right. I think this whole topic has gone com completely off, off base somehow in the wake of the election. So if you read the Coastal Press, which did a generally spectacular job, I think, of covering the election last year, but if you, if you just read the press in, in aggregate, read all the stories, the overwhelming thing that you were carried away with was there is no way on earth that Donald Trump can win this election. Mm -hmm. Right, it's impossible. You had, you, had the, you had the fantastic editor of the New York Times up, up here on stage today. They had the, the day of the election, they had Hillary that morning at 92, 92% odds of winning the election. Right, I saw the ticker. 92% odds. Mm -hmm. So it actually turned out if you actually wanted to, if you actually wanted last year in 2016 to read the story of the election and actually get the truth, you read Breitbart. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody wants to hear that because we all like have concluded that Breitbart is like absurd right-wing propaganda and that somehow, you know, the traditional, the coastal press is somehow the truth. But like it just like demonstrably last year, that was not true. So I just think we all just need to take a step back on this idea that there's absolute truth and that somehow we somehow have some sort of monopoly or preferential access to it. And the rest of these people kind of don't understand anything. By the way, it's a surefire way to lose elections. Because like if, if Democrats are ever going to lose elections are ever going to win elections again in the center of the country, in the south of the country, they have to mm -hmm. show up with some message other than you're all a bunch of morons. Mm -hmm. like that's, that. that's not going to work. That's not. But that's not the point. The point is, are these you can. Still, well, that is the, that is the message. Yes. That, but I think that's, that's what's being heard. Yes. But that's an easy shorthand way of saying no matter what they say on the left, the either coast is untrue. You can say untruths to people and get them to vote a certain way. I mean, it's very, you know that. You know, if you, want, if you, want, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Right. Right. Obama, 2008, right? Yes. Obamacare, like, how's that? Yes. How's that no, I get like, that. I'm going I'm to close, close, close Guantanamo in my first so year in office. You don't. Right? Like, for, for some reason. Well, like, the fact that politicians break promises to us is not a, uh, is not a very big If you read surprise. the press coverage of those promises at the time, they were presented as truth. They were presented as, yes, these are absolutely things that are going to happen. Like, right. there, was, so, there were reams of coverage around Obamacare of how well it was going to work. All right. Getting from the news coverage, coverage. what is the responsibility of these platforms? Do they have any? Because Dean would say no. He, did, he said no. They're just there is platforms. He didn't. He thought the New York Times had a responsibility. They necessarily don't. Do you imagine all the all these technology platforms have any social responsibility? Uh, Mark has been talking about it a lot. He's been visiting lots of the country. He's been petting livestock quite a bit, um, which is nice. Do you know how fluffy cows are? Uh, they are apparently. Cows are super fluffy. I yeah. I have been around many cows. I am aware of cows. Um, but um, how do you what, how do you look at that responsibility? Because everyone seems to be visiting the doing that kind of thing. They do, they are in Silicon Valley. How do you look at the? Is there a social responsibility for this technology now? They're all going where I grew up. <laughs> I know. Most amazing thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and you left and aren't going back. So I'm going to frustrate. I'm going to, I'm going to frustrate. I'm, I'm just not going to, I can't talk. I'm sitting right. director of Facebook. I need to let Facebook talk about right, this. Not I, Facebook, I but just in general, like as technology evolves, do you think that Silicon Valley needs to have more of a social conscience? Oh, so I think it's definitely a good idea for businesses to have social conscience. And I, but again, this is where I would say, I, I believe there is much more of a, uh, it's become very trendy to claim that, that Silicon Valley doesn't have a social conscience. And it's just the default assumption is that all these companies are doing horrible things all the time. And I just don't think it's true. Okay. All right. So I don't think the situation is anywhere near as polarized as, as people are presenting it. Well, people like to... But to, by the way, Silicon Valley, just if I could for a second, um, Silicon Valley, like, people, people need to <laughs> well, bear in mind... you could, and you will. <laughs> so two years ago, two years ago, two, two years ago, the conventional wisdom, right, around or much of the rest of the country and that you read, actually, frankly, in a lot of the press coverage of Silicon Valley was, it's this hotbed of, like, these crazy libertarians, like, it's mm -hmm. these crazy extreme outlier, like, you know, fringe elements. And, of course, our, our friend Peter is kind of, was always kind of held up. Uh, as Your lead, friend Peter. As good friend Peter. Uh, Your good friend. Very Peter. good friend Peter, actually, uh, was held up as kind of representative uh, uh, of the valley. Right? A funny thing happened last year, which was it turns out that was fake news. Uh -huh. 
uh, it turns out that was not true. In fact, it turns out the opposite is true, which is the 99.999% the of Silicon Valley last year voted for Hillary Clinton, supported Hillary Clinton, donated to Hillary Clinton. Like it was over, it was like the, the money difference, I don't know, it was like some giant multiple mm -hmm. money difference basically because nobody, nobody, nobody gets to Trump. And so the Valley not only, not only believes it has Oh, by the problem. way, may I point out, you tweeted I'm with her, correct? That is, that is true. Right, I, will, okay. I will concede to that. All right. I subsequently deleted, all, it was on I subsequently deleted all my tweets, including that okay, one, but right, I, will, okay. I will cop to that. All right. Um, so I Silicon Valley, I, so I think can't... Silicon Valley not only has has a real sense of social responsibility. If anything, Silicon Valley is all the way over on the other side. Uh, Silicon Valley is extremely left wing, extremely mm -hmm. liberal, um, and I actually think this is now this has become part of the problem. I think it's now you have the other version of the problem, which is actually, I think it's really hard for a lot of people in Silicon Valley to even articulate the other side at this mm -hmm. at this point. I think it's hard to even articulate the case for voting for Donald Trump. I think it's hard to articulate what people in the Midwest and the South are thinking. And I think this polarization thing. It's the general problem that I was talking about earlier, but it's, I, think the, I think the valley is part of the coast polarizing from the center of the country to a much greater extreme than we've ever seen in our lifetimes. All right, now. And it, it, this does not, I mean, left unchecked, this does not head to good places. Okay, this is great because you didn't want to talk about politics at all, but great. Okay, um, so you have been very active. Yes. In that left-wing cabal, apparently. Um, but That's the way we you, it's not a cabal. It. It's, it's, like, no, it's, it's, like, a, it's like nearly everybody. No, it's a cabal. Um, okay. So um, talk about what you're doing, because I think people are, people are looking to you. Everyone says we've got to get Reed as the leader of this movement. No. Yes, but they do. I, I, I do. I do, yeah. yeah, yeah. No. So talk uh, about what you're doing precisely so, with Mark Pincus and others. Yeah, so um, Mark, who's here in the audience, uh, he and I started talking years ago about uh, how do you essentially try to create consumer and technologies uh, to help shape a kind of pro-business and also pro-social kind of social values future, and how do you put that together into a movement? Because I actually think part of the whole thing is to get the bridge building to make the right thing, and I think part of the social responsibility for these growing uh, strength of tech platforms is to make that happen. So I think there is, I think there is responsibility. I think it's a growing sense of it, and I think people are trying to figure out what it means and and how to operationalize it the right way. And then personally, you know, it's everything from obviously part of the the question that 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 led to the election of Donald Trump is. There's a lot of people in a number of states that are feeling in pain. They, they worry that their children have less good futures than they had. Uh, there is you know, kind of serious uh, opioid epidemics in a number of different states and, and regions. And they say, look, these need to be fixed. Don't tell us more of the same. Tell us how we have opportunity. Tell us how we make that happen. And I think you know, part of the thing about uh, being inventive, being problem solvers, because you know, that's part of what we try to do with technology and businesses and so forth, is we should do more of that. Now, I think another part of it is the earlier thing is I do think we have a problem. I think the fake news thing is actually leveled both ways. Like, I don't think it's a the coast saying the mid, Midwest. I mean, you've got you the just, president saying CNN is fake news, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, you have the erosion of these kinds of institutions, and I, we have to be able to talk. Right? If you can't have some basis for conversation which says, okay, this is what uh, we think truth is, this is where we think we should be going, it's very difficult for a democracy to work. So, you know, it's everything from the kind of win the future. Um, this is this organization. Yes, that, that WTF. WTF right. with a deliberate, you know, kind of. Under I, I see what you're doing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I and, find it juvenile, but go right ahead. Oh, well, we specialize in juvenile. I know that. Yes. Oh, believe yeah. me, after many years yes. of covering yes. all of you, I get um, that. And so, um, uh, matter of fact, actually, one of my um, most uh, favorite theories of the evolution of humanity is neoteny. Right, mm -hmm. we were born early, and and that plasticity and ability to learn is, is key. So 
Um, and so I think there's a whole stack of things. And I think some of it is like, what does the future work look like? I think some of it is the question of uh, how do we get communication channel? How do we get to a rebuild of you know, some kind of communication? Like one of the projects that I funded at the MIT Media Lab is called Cortico, which has done, has done an analysis through the Twitter firehose of how fragmented uh, the discourse is. Well, how do we get that discourse somewhat less fragmented? Mm -hmm. Because with that, uh, with fragmented discourse, of course you end up with you know, kind of complete, like, different planets. And no, that's it, not it's a hellscape out there, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that, but that's the, well, and then there's a the whole question about how these things get hacked by, you know, autocratic hostile actors. Right. And, you know, one of the things that we have to pay attention to is it is not necessarily purely just the diversity of humanity that's playing on it, but there are people who uh, have political aims that may be investing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm really interested to see uh, what will emerge out of, you know, kind of Russian and foreign power influence on trying to hack social media, mm -hmm. because that's, that's kind of a, a key issue. And I think actually one of the things that, um, you know, uh, Brad Smith at Microsoft called for that I think is really interesting is how do we get to a Geneva Convention in cyber? I think that's actually an important thing to, to look at happening, because part of that is well, what's going to happen with these things being hackable? A little bit like the talk just before us, your attention can be hacked in ways mm -hmm. that it isn't just code hacking, it isn't just cyber, but it's kind of a question of what do you presume to be true? Right. And, and you know, you want a vibrant democracy, we have to try to, uh, to, to get to a point where we're having rational conversations and we're actually using evidence and argumentation to decide X is true and Y is not. Right, all right, I wanna to get to where innovation's going because I think that's really what investments is, but are you, you investing a lot of your money in this? I'm not supposed to call you a certain thing of the left, but <laughs> what, are you investing a lot of money? Do you wanna run for office? Definitely not run for office. Why? Um, well, um, look, I, I prefer the uh, partnering uh, board member investing, uh, that's one of the reasons the I guy behind this, yeah, yeah, I didn't guy say behind the CEO this, of LinkedIn for the that smoking reason. man, yes. right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, role model yeah. Um, <laughs> for all those who didn't get the X Files reference, right. yeah, um, and so, um, uh, and then, uh, but I'm investing a bunch of money. I'm trying to actually facilitate conversations, trying to facilitate what the right kinds of um, ideas are. Like, what are the ways that we can. Uh, make sure that we have you know vibrant uh, economic ecosystems and middle class jobs across the country. How much really money? Important. Um, ultimately, a lot. I'd say thus far is probably millions. Millions, but hundreds of millions. You think this is it could get there? Could get there. All right. So let's talk about where. Um, and Mark, you're not running for office. I hope. No. Okay. Good. Okay. I would not advise. Can, can you can you imagine anybody voting for me? <laughs> You I'd know, vote for you. I might okay. just as a joke. <laughs> Is that right? Um, okay. so, so. Too. <laughs> if I run, I'll take the sarcastic uh, votes. I'm fine with that. All right. So let's talk about innovation, where it's going. You guys have been around forever. There's been a lot of different investments in p periods of time and things like that. What, and it is related to jobs, the future of jobs. Let's start with there. How do you, because I think to me, it seems like Silicon Valley is doing a lot more serious thought about investing beyond into the into into the next era, cars, automation, robotics. Each of you, why don't you start, Mark? Talk about what you think are the most. Last time you were here, you were talking about software eating the world. You talked about a, a wide range of things. How are you thinking now about investments? Yeah, so it's interesting. We have two sectors, two different kinds of of, of, of economy in the U.S. So two, two different kind of categories of sectors. 
divide them into what I might call the fast sectors and the slow sectors, um, or the fast change sectors, slow change sectors. So the fast change sectors are sectors like retail, transportation, uh, media, um, in which uh, technology has had a huge impact. Um, software is eating those sectors. Um, there's massive change happening in those sectors. Massive productivity improvements as, as measured by, by, by productivity, which is how economists measure the rate of technological change. Uh, and by the way, gigantic churn in, in jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So huge, huge churn in, in obviously media and retail. And you're uh, in BuzzFeed, you're in a bunch of yeah, things. Like yeah, that. exactly, right? And, and lots of debates about the nature of that churn. Um, by the way, however, along with that, rapidly falling prices, right? So the, the prices of basically everything in, re, you know, Amazon, if the, the experience everybody has is an Amazon customer, prices in retail, prices in media with all the free media and the internet, and prices in transportation are, are going to fall, you know, dramatically with self-driving cars. Um, and so uh, very rapidly falling prices, but like a big, and then a big concern on, on, of where the job's going to come from. So that's part of the economy. The other part of the economy is what you might call the slow change part of the economy, which is all the sectors in which the opposite of that is happening. Um, and so these are sectors like healthcare, education, and construction, um, uh, elder care, child care, and also, by the way, government. Um, so to call those kind of the big six. Um, in those sectors, the opposite is happening, which is in those sectors, we have a price crisis, right? The price of all those things is rising super fast, right? So the, the FT had a story today. 88% um, of all the price inflation in the U.S. economy since 1990 is attributable entirely, 88% of it attributable to healthcare, education, and construction, right? And so what's happening on, on the sort of the slow change sector of the economy is basically everything's becoming super expensive. And if you try to buy a house or if you want to send a kid to school or if you need to get care for a, an ailing relative, you experience this and hence all the concern around the cost of all these things. Those are the sectors of the economy that technology is having almost no impact on, right? Software is playing a very small role at best. Mm -hmm. um, those are also the sectors that have almost no productivity growth, right, as measured by economists. Um, and left unchecked, those sectors are basically just going to eat the economy, right? If, if, those, if, the, if, the, if the products and services in those sectors keep rising in price, they end up being everything we pay for. So healthcare it, is eating the economy. Yeah, healthcare, healthcare, education, and construction are the big three. Um, and they're, they're just eating the economy. Uh, fully loaded construction costs have doubled since the year 2000 in the US. I mean, just like absurd things are happening in real estate and construction. Um, and so I think the opportunity and the challenge is for the tech industry and Silicon Valley and all of us to go figure out how to have a much bigger impact in the, in the slow growth sectors of the economy, the slow chain sectors of the economy. I think if we do that, if we're effective at it, we have the opportunity to bend the cost curves over time. And these, and these by the way, are very, very big sectors with very, very big kind of entrenched forces uh, at play. They, by the way, these also, the slow change sectors also happen to be highly regulated, right? These are sectors of the economy where the government plays a gigantic role in the economics of these sectors. And so these are not easy sectors to disrupt, right? Mm -hmm. These are, this is the big leagues. Um, but the opportunity exists to really go after the price curves uh, and systematically drive down prices in those industries. Um, if we do that, like that may be the single biggest thing we could do to improve quality of life uh, for, are you investing? for ordinary people. We are actively investing. Uh, so super actively investing, education, uh, Udacity, one of our companies, going directly after skills acquisition, doing very well uh, with an entirely new way to link with employers to do skills acquisition and training online. Uh, we're very aggressively investing in healthcare. We think there's a whole new, very interesting thing happening at the intersection of healthcare and software that's just getting started. Uh, and we're investing very aggressively in that. Uh, construction's harder. Um, you know, the big uh, challenge that we're all going to have to tackle in the long run is this sort of question of cities and this question of land use and whether cities are going to be allowed to get big enough where everybody who wants to get to them is going to be able to get to them. Um, Mayor Swisher in San Francisco, right. um, I think, is going to have this on the top of her list yeah. uh, as things to solve. Absolutely. Um, so that's the sector. That's the you're sector. going to be my deputy of I'm, something. I am looking forward to it. Yes, yeah. yes. I will take that on my business card. Um, 
so that's a big one. We're also, by the way, um, uh, elder care and child care are both, uh, both are ex increasingly central uh, uh, elements of the economy, um, huge employers uh, and both uh, fast rising sectors. We have a company, Honor, that I'm involved in that's trying to come up with a fundamentally better way uh, to orchestrate the whole process of elder right. care. Reed, what about you? Yeah. So um, slightly different division. Um, so I think about things that are kind of classic for what we do, which is kind of businesses with network effects, which can include both consumer and enterprise sides. So those are things like, you know, obviously Airbnb or Convoy, which is kind of Uber for trucking. Uh, we just uh, recently... Uh, Do we still use that Uber for, or is that not allowed right now? Uh, well, I think we always use the version of you know, right. Airbnb for whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, okay. a, it's a quick... We just did that for Mark, Mr. Yeah. Lift. No, Uber for X is better now because it has an extra element of danger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, the Lyft guy. I let you have that one. Go ahead. Um, and so there's a, sta a stack of those uh, sort of businesses, which I think are the, I think we will continually design new forms of software ecosystems that have these network effects that uh, organize how millions to billions of people communicate, work, um, you know, kind of uh, co coordinate, communicate, all that sort of thing together. And then uh, part of what we look for is what are things that are, substantively contrarian that are not in the kind of the current, you know, kind of buzz cycle, right? The buzz cycle, you know, AI. today is AI, uh, AR, VR, you know, et cetera. And then what are the things that there you can actually do something that actually might be uh, really interesting? And some of those will play out into the, those industries. So, you know, if you figure out um, uh, different kinds of, of construction, you know, robotics, or you figure out, you know, energy sources or other kinds of things, those can actually play into those and can actually change those cost curves. So it is, a, it is, it's a different way of looking at it, which is kind of through the lens of these things are defining kind of network effect software ecosystems um, with people and, and devices, you know, kind of combined together. And then these things are what's kind of off the current beaten path. So what is that? What do you name something? Um, so let's see, what can I name? Um, uh, well, I mean, so, you know, one of the things that um, we did last year is a energy company, which I can't talk about in depth. All right. What kind of energy? Uh, so yeah. possibly fusion. Possibly fusion. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> God. And, and, and investing in that in a new an exciting way. That's yeah. Right. Okay, all right. Um, what about robotics? So I think robotics is, generally speaking, one of the areas that everyone knows is going to be super important, everything from autonomous vehicles to other kinds of things. So there's a, just a ton of them. Like the, the number of autonomous vehicles, startups is... Yeah, they're like, everywhere. Is, is like Crazy. an uncountable set. Um, but it's clearly going to be there. And then robotics are going to be, like, for example, when you started saying construction, I was like, oh, robotics is the interesting, you know, uh, angle is the first uh, reflex there. And I think there's going to be a bunch of things there, which some of which you'll see from the big companies. I think some of which you'll see from startups. What do you think in robotics? Because, you know, Bill Gates was just saying we should uh, tax robots. Is that right? <laughs> and then Mark Andrews is a, Mark uh, Cuban is saying we've got to get into it because China is going to do this first. We should. It's horrible and evil, but we have to, we have to, we have to be really good at it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a little bit of a paradox in there. Um, so uh, we should definitely tax robots right after we get done taxing PCs. Okay, uh, right. Which took away all the secretary jobs. All right, okay. So I, I, I propose we do it in that order. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, so far, how do you look So far, at... Microsoft hasn't taken us up on that. All right. How do you get to, what do you imagine robotics is going? Oh, it's very... It is a contract. We'll get to the job issue in a second, but yeah. but talk about the, the sectors, automation and robotics together. And 
I suppose AI also gets in that pot. Yeah. So look. So so the big thing is ha the big thing is happening is the the so called so called AI, uh, but machine learning the whole the whole sort of uh, family of technologies around around machine learning and sensors. Right. Some, something dramatic has really happened. Uh, something dramatic really tipped about five years ago, where a whole category of things that just didn't work at one point all of a sudden work. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just I think to I think at this point there's just a feeding frenzy in the tech industry and in the valley to try to experiment with every single possible permutation of mm -hmm. what can be done with AI and, and, and robots. Um, uh, at, Every possible shape, size, and description. Um, it's, I think it's spectacular. It's a, it's, it's one of the biggest, um, it's one of the biggest booms slash kind of exploratory. Let's go map the landscape and let's go try all the ideas that mm -hmm. I think I've ever seen. And what do you? And, and we're actively investing. We're, what do you like about that? What do you? And what do you worry in that area? When you say if everyone's pursuing it, just oh, it, well, it's a classic. It's the Silicon Valley. It's, it's the thing that it's the thing that gets everybody excited about Silicon Valley, and then it, it's the thing everybody always criticizes Silicon Valley for, which is of, of course we're going to overdo it. Like the, of course there are way too many companies being funded doing self-driving cars, but out of so. What always happens in the valley, right? The, the, the great strength of the valley, I would argue, is that w w when something starts to work, we, we overfund it. Like we, we have way too many companies going after this. Uh, most of them don't work, but the ones that do end up becoming very big and, and important, right? And, and, and ultimately valuable. And so we'll, we'll, I think we'll get that exact, exact same result out of this phenomenon. Uh, for people who want to say the Silicon Valley just does bubbles over and over again, there will be ammunition to support that view. But I think out of that will come, you know, defining companies of the era that we probably haven't even heard of yet that are going to be on the on the scale of the big technology winners. In that sector. About. In that sector, yeah. The opportunities are very, very, very big. Do you worry, either of you, about the job impact? Um, when we're talking, and I want to understand where you look at the, the where you feel the responsibility, you, if you have any, on the future of jobs. It's the thing I'm very interested in. Well, so, and obviously, I mean, to some degree, what I founded LinkedIn was trying to help people figure out what the skills, jobs, yeah. opportunities of the future. So uh, taking software and networks to enable that and enable people to be able to uh, find the right opportunities, get the right skills, get the right uh, connections to those kinds of things, that's actually very central. Let me give you a kind of a classic uh, kind of thought on within the autonomous vehicles, because people frequently say, oh, these autonom autonomous vehicles are going to take a whole bunch of jobs. There's an issue there, and you have to get that transition. But on the other hand, once you have autonomous vehicles, for example, being able to have people uh, now actually, in fact, go uh, be able to uh, get to work in a much more easy way, to be able to actually, uh, when they're in transit, to be actually doing things that are either relaxing or working as a way of doing it, it also opens up a variety of productivity possibilities. No, I, I get that argument yeah. of like you can now text and drink. I get that. I get you know it's it's all the, <laughs> well, happy... the drink is the fun thing. The texting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The but it is that happy shiny future idea yeah. of like oh it's going to be so much just same thing with AI, same thing with that. Mark, you were just going to say something, but what I wonder about is when that happens, there are millions of jobs. Driving, take driving. Right. Millions of jobs, and I think when Travis was on this stage and said the problem is the guy, he actually was honest compared to most people, um, by saying the guy in the front seat's the problem. We need to get rid of the guy in the front seat. You know what I mean? Which everyone had a sharp intake of breath. I was like, yay, he said it. Um, but but what do you? What, how do you look at that? Do you feel? What are you going to do about that? Or do you have nothing to do about it? So it's a fallacy. Okay. It's, it's the lump of labor fallacy. It's, okay. the, it's the Luddite fallacy. It's it's recurring panic. This happens every 25, 50 years. People get all amped up okay. about, about machines are going to take all the jobs, and it never happens. So let's talk about cars specifically, because that, that that's front and center for the conversation. So when the automobile, 100 years ago, when the automobile went mainstream, this concern literally existed. Exact same panic happened, and it happened because of all the people whose livelihood literally was taking care of horses, right? So everybody running stables and everybody doing blacksmiths and like the whole thing, and oh my God, what's going to happen? Because uh, Ford Motor Company is going to own the world and nobody else is going to have anything to do. 
the car then created not only a lot of jobs building cars, right? It became a huge employer, right? Now, <laughs> the car industry became such a huge employer that we had to bail out all the car companies to keep all mm -hmm. the people working. Like, it, it, in 100 years, it went <laughs> entirely in the other direction. Um, not only that, the car, think of everything else that happened as a consequence of the car. So the idea of surface streets, right? Paved streets emerged because of the car, right? Streets weren't paved before the car. They were paved for the car. So paving streets, um, the, idea of, uh, the idea of restaurants, the idea that you might actually go someplace to eat something was uh, an invention of the car. Um, the idea of motels, hotels, the place we're in here mm -hmm. is, it exists entirely because of the automobile. The idea of movie theaters, the idea of apartment complexes, the idea of um, uh, office complexes, the idea of uh, sub suburbs, the entire build out of suburban America. Um, the jobs that were created by the automobile on the second, third, and fourth order effects were 100x, 1,000x the number of jobs that blacksmiths had. Um, and so th this goes to kind of the fundamental kind of flaw in the, in the logic that they call it the lump of labor fallacy, which is um, technological change causes productivity growth. Productivity growth lets us produce more of what we can already make with less resources and then lets us create, that, that's what frees up the spending power to let us create lots of new things, create lots of new demand, and that's what creates new industries and that's what creates new jobs. And then 100 years later, we look back on it and we're like, I can't believe anybody was ever a blacksmith. And so th this has been the panic, literally this is like the panic every 25, 50 years. Um, Except if you were a blacksmith. And it never comes true. <laughs> the good news is- They didn't work out. The good, the good news is the car, comp the car companies uh, and all of these other industries hired huge numbers of people. And so I think the self-driving car has the opportunity to not only improve productivity for people in the car, which will be a huge economic boost for those people, uh, not only has the opportunity to save lives, right? Over a million people die worldwide in road deaths today caused by human drivers, and I think we can take that very close to zero, right? Which is very good for both human welfare and in terms of economic productivity, right? It's, it's, like, it's a very serious dent in productivity when people get killed. Um, and then, um, and then, uh, and then, and then, and then all the, all the ancillary industries that end up getting built up. So as an example, maybe this whole land use thing everybody's worried about, maybe with self-driving cars, we can start to have exurbs that actually work, which is to say a, another layer around cities, right, further out, right, that don't qualify as suburbs because you, you, couldn't tolerate, you couldn't possibly tolerate commuting in an hour, hour and a half, right? So people in Silicon Valley are already experiencing, if you live south of San Jose, your commute now might be an hour and a half, but it's an hour and a half in the car driving the car. If you were in the self-driving car, all of a sudden, then you've got, you might have a huge construction boom in all the outlying areas around these cities, and that construction boom might hire far more people than, than were ever involved in driving cars. So um, and so the process works. Um, by the way, as evidence of that, um, after all of the technological disruption that has everybody all freaked out that got us to where we are today, Right, unemployment in the U.S. is now back below, it's now below 4.3%. Right, There's except six, if you're living in areas like Kentucky. There's, six million, there's six million job openings uh, in the U.S. and the, the, the panic stories in the press have gone overnight from, oh my God, not enough jobs to, oh my God, not enough workers, right? And the Times is an example. Uh, uh, Dean's paper had a very good story about two weeks ago on there's now a crisis in Utah. There aren't enough people to literally milk all the cows. They've literally run out of people to milk the cows. And so what, the, the, the jobs crisis we actually have in the U.S. today is we don't have enough workers. Trained in the right thing. And by the way, we might make that, you know, if, this, if these immigration policies continue, we might, we might make that problem far worse. Yeah. Well, yeah. oh, okay, you're for immigration then. Very much so. Okay, yes. good. Um, what are you worried about? Are you worried about this at all? And then we're going to get to questions. Uh, well, so the one thing, I agree with most of what Mark uh, said there, including the fact that if you remap what is the logistics in space, it creates a lot of different productivity, not just construction, but a lot of different ways that that may play out and changes cost curves. I think the, the transitions can be very painful. So I think we need to pay attention to the pain, the, that pain. So like, yeah. for example, the agriculture to industrial revolution actually involved a lot. very ugly. Very ugly. And so while I tend to think, oh, look, it works out, it, it'll probably work out anyway, 
the, the question is, let's try to make it work out in a way that's more humane, more, uh, you know, kind of the society that we want to be, and, right. and kind of not as much pain in that kind of transition. Right, absolutely. Do you think about that pain? So look, so let me ask. Or are you just Blofeld, or what's going let on? Let me ask. So let's talk about what's actually happening. So these, okay. these are all hypotheticals. Let's talk about what's actually happening. So economists have a way of measuring the rate of technological change, disruption in the economy. It's called productivity, productivity growth. Would we expect, based on everything that we read here and understand with this rate of technological change and, 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 uh, and disruption, would we think that productivity growth is at generational highs or lows? Probably highs. I'm right, and it turns out it's at uh, it's a generational lows. Productivity growth is running super low, and ec economists are writing books left, right, and center, agonizing over why productivity isn't growing faster. Would you expect um, that the rate of job churn, the rate of both job creation and destruction in the economy, which tend to go hand in hand, would you expect that the, those, the rate of churn is at a generational high or generational low? No idea. I'm not going to answer. Uh, it's, a it's a trick question, as you've right. now anticipated. Uh, uh, Everything's the, a trick question with you. The rate of job churn in the American economy has been declining for 40 years and, no, and shows no sign of growing. Would you expect that the rate of which people are God. turning over in jobs, individuals turning over in jobs, is increasing or decreasing? Well, millennials or who? Everybody. Well, just everybody is. A set. By the way, including millennials. Probably are. Decreasing. All right. People are staying in jobs longer. And would you expect, because of all the disruption that we know about, would you expect that the rate of new entrance of new companies into existing industries is accelerating all or right, decelerating? Go ahead. It's exhausted. decelerating. Okay. We don't have the this problem. This is Mark at 11 p.m. with We don't there. have, I haven't even had a scotch yet. Right. <laughs> that can be fixed. That can be fixed. We don't even, we don't, we do not, not only do we not have the problem everybody's worried about, we have the opposite problem. We don't have enough change. We don't have enough change. We don't have enough creation of new jobs. We don't have enough creation of new opportunity, which is what, in my view, goes right back to the politics is what leads to zero-sum politics. Right. The reason our politics is going sideways is not because there's too much change, it's because there's not enough change. Mm -hmm. It's because people don't see a future because they don't see anything changing. I see. And I think you see the zero-sum the zero politics, you see that sense on both the left, right, with, on the Bernie left and on, and on the Trump right. I think that's the problem. The way through that is not to slow down. The way through that is to speed up, right? The way through that is more change, more growth, more opportunity, right? right? That's the path forward. And so I'm, this, this goes back to, like, I'm just, I'm very worried that we've actually gotten off and we're just talking about completely the wrong thing right now. And I'm hoping maybe over the next couple of well, years, this, we can the, massage this a little bit more towards the actual, the actual crisis that we have. All right. Questions from the audience right here. Hey, Guy Horowitz, T-Capital. How are you? Um, so this is a very uh, Silicon Valley-centric view, which is where you guys are. Um, is the world changing in that respect? Are we seeing more ideas and concepts coming from other yeah, parts of the world? Uh, so I think, the, uh, I think the answer to your question in some degree is both, which is yes, there's more entrepreneurship, there's more technology, there's uh, multiple areas, not just obviously a huge amount of stuff going on in China, but like when you get to Europe, it's you know, Stockholm and Berlin and London, uh, there's various cities across the US. On the other hand, uh, frequently that's the, is the, uh, is Silicon Valley losing some of yeah, its edge? Yeah, I think edge. that's always the question. And I, and I actually think that Silicon Valley is persisting because of the network effect of Silicon Valley uh, in terms of uh, lots of entrepreneurs move here, the ideation uh, moves at a very fast pace rate because uh, people will talk to each other about what's, what's going on, what are, what are you seeing in autonomous vehicles, which things are gonna work, et cetera, et cetera, and that also creates something. So I think the answer is, in some degree, is yes to the rest of the world, but also continuing uh, very interesting patterns of leadership from Silicon Valley. Are you worried about Silicon Valley losing its step? No. Never. Never. Not right now. Yeah. Well, we're doing everything we can to kill it, but okay. so far we so far we keep so far we keep missing. <laughs> All right. <Who's> the we <laughs> collectively the state okay. of California. Oh, okay. All the right. city of San Francisco. <laughs> All right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm going to make it even worse for you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Hello, uh, Manny Coutiel. 
Um, this is based on a quote from you read earlier on in the topic of uh, politics, but it goes to both of you. Um, you said that you think that we need more rational conversations and that one of the things you want to do is to be able to facilitate more rational conversation. Um, what would you say to the premise that um, the problem is is that too many of the conversations, especially the ones that need to be rational, are happening digitally, uh, and actually what we need is uh, to facilitate more in-person conversations. Uh, and if you agree that that's, a pre that that's an important premise, that too many of the conversations are happening digitally, how would you uh, facilitate more in-person conversations? And may I add to that, Reed has a new podcast correct, called yes. Masters? Masters of Scale. Masters of Scale, and this yeah. guy was on it, I think, right? Yeah, not yet. But not yet, okay, well, he should be. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's very heavy conversational. Yeah, so um, the, uh, so actually, you know, there's a whole renaissance happening in podcasts. And, yeah, you know, I pod like them. Yes, exactly, there's, yeah. there's, there's some very good ones. I know that, yes. mine in particular. <laughs> yes. um, and so, uh, look, I think the short answer is more conversations in person are good. One of the things that I think is interesting, and specifically is there's an organization in Florida called Village Square, and their basic theory is that you can cross the aisle and get through disagreements more if people essentially sit with each other. So, for example, one of the things that actually makes uh, you know, Washington Congress dysfunctional is that they won't actually sit with each other and talk to each other as much. So I think it's a good thing to have. I don't think it needs to be in opposition to digital. There's a great book, so I recommend a great book on this topic. There's a great book called The Tyranny of, no, what was it called? Uh, Infamous Scribblers. Uh, Eric Burns, Infamous Scribblers. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a story of the role that newspapers played in the American Revolution. Um, and you, people may know the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin most notably, were heavily involved in the newspaper industry yeah, at that time. And it was sort of, it, a lot of the debates around the revolution took place in newspapers. And there were like 15, 20, 30, 50 newspapers per city. So it was a very kind of thriving uh, kind of thing at the time. Um, and if you read that book, um, you will be amazed at how polite people are today. Yeah, they are. Uh, they were awful. Yeah. As compared to what they were like then. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, it's amazing the parallels. Well, maybe you won't think that we're polite today, but it's amazing the parallels. Uh, newspapers in the seven, like 1770s, 1780s, they were basically blogs. Um, and the founding fathers actually were notorious for using uh, pseudonyms. Yep. And, and in fact, they would use multiple pseudonyms and then attack each other. It, it, they would have their pseudonyms attack each other right. to sell papers. Yep. Um, so Ben Franklin wrote under like 15 different pseudonyms and his different personalities would like go to war in the press. And he sold a lot of newspapers. And they would attack each other for stuff that even today you wouldn't expect politicians to attack each other over. And so I, I just go through all that to say I think it provides some historical perspectives, which is... There was never a golden age where everybody was no. like polite and nice and fact-based. Like it never, it, it, it never existed. No, we were always and so. Vile. This idea that that's there's some huge know. change that's happened is just not true. It's pretty vile. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's been terrible. It's yeah. been ter it's oh, been yay. It's, it's been terrible for a long, long time. I know. No, no, but this this goes to and this may be where I'm a huge fan of everything Reed is doing, but I'm a little bit less on the train of the right answer here is, I think more rational conversation is always fantastic. I'm a little bit more skeptical that it happens because I don't think people basically want to have rational conversations. Um, and as a consequence of that, I think we need a system that works without them, which is, I think, the genius of the American system. All right, then. Vile it is. Go ahead. Hi, Casey Newton with The Verge. Uh, wanted to ask you guys whether you support the experiments that are now underway with universal basic income, and if so, what you think we'll learn from Great those question. experiments. Well, look, I think broadly, um, I think there's a predisposition to try to do over planning. So I think experiments are generally good. Um, I think the 
uh, issues around uh, basic income are, I, I kind of think of it as a, as a plan Z. If you can't think of something better, it's, it's the plan you have to fall back on. But I actually think that in work, we don't just get like the money for you know, sustenance and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but we also have something where I feel meaningful. I have part of a community that, that I can strive to something better and so forth. And I think you want a system that's designed around that. That doesn't necessarily exclude some notion of UBI in the future. And there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you need to look at in that, but I think that the better plans aren't just go to that. They're actually, in fact, ways that people still have kind of work and still have a way that they have meeting in, within their community. UBI, I'm going to guess on this one. I am completely in favor of the experiments. I love experiments. Um, UBI as a policy is genetically engineered to alienate everybody. Okay. Um, I thought so. I thought you'd just go, communism, and then that would be well, it. Well, <laughs> if you're on the right, yeah. it's communism. All right. Uh, if you're on the left, it's a diversion of critical resources away from a needs-based social safety net towards people who don't need the money. I mean, UBI is we're all getting checks. And I don't know about you guys. I, don't, like, I, I think it would probably be a little unfair for me to get the check. And yeah. so, and this is a ser this is serious. Poverty poverty advocates. So Vox actually, Vox ran a very good a couple of years ago. Ran a very good interview with one of the leading poverty advocates, who's a hard left winger, um, uh, super hard. And he just said, "Look, this this is just an absurd idea. There's no way because we need the money to basically take care of people who need the help. The last thing we should be doing is diverting the money away from the people who need the help to people who don't need the help. Right. Um, and so, this is one of those policies that like simply can't be implemented. So we we can experiment. We can talk about it, but it's never going to happen. All right. Hi. Uh, Jivu Patel from Box. Uh, Mark, a uh, quick question for you um, on um, the fast-changing sectors versus the slow-changing sectors. If you, if you just simulate your experiment out on the fact that you know, the prices keep dropping up, kind of dropping on the fast-changing sectors, um, the challenge that we have with tech disruption is not that productivity doesn't go up and not that new jobs don't get created. It's that the displaced jobs don't get replaced fast enough. So the coal miner isn't getting retrained fast enough, and the reason Trump won is because those people hit rock bottom in middle America and said, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go out and vote for Trump. What's there to lose? And so uh, is there a way that we as a community over here could go out and actually think of a sector, which is the retraining sector, where you could go out and take all of those fast kind of change sectors, uh, which are going to get disrupted over time, uh, per your theory, and make sure that the employees in those sectors can actually get replaced um, uh, to new jobs so that we actually Fast don't have training. a deficit of Fast jobs. Training. Yeah. yeah, so there's an obvious answer here, um, and I'm actually kind of surprised it doesn't come up more often. So the obvious answer, four of the ten wealthiest counties in the U.S. are suburbs of Washington, D.C., um, which happens to be where all the federal, federal bureaucracies are, right, and all the defense contractors, Beltway Bandits, all this, the entire support system for the federal government. Yeah. It's all geographically right around Washington, D.C., and so the obvious answer is move half of that to the Midwest. Uh, we could start Department of Agriculture, like Department of Agriculture is in DC, like seems like maybe that could go to Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, Department of Education, there's a lot of kids getting educated in Pennsylvania, that could go there. Department of the Interior, you know, Michigan's part of the interior, let's put that one there. Okay. I'm voting for you at this point, I don't know why. <laughs> Seems totally straightforward. It's actually a, ser it's a, it's a serious answer. It's, it's a serious answer in the following sense, which is this idea that there's, it goes back to what I talked about already, but this idea that there's some sort of dramatic tech-based transformation that's somehow leaving people stranded is, I think, fundamentally untrue. Well, let me put a, a finer point on it, which is, I, so I grew up in rural Wisconsin, right? So I, I grew up in exactly where we're talking about, including light manufacturing, agriculture. Um, my county voted for Obama in 08, Obama in 012, and guess who? Trump. In, in, in 16, Trump. Trump. Um, it is not lost in anybody where I come from that we all care about this issue only after November 8th, 2016. 
like nobody was talking about these issues on November seventh, and so this idea that there's some like huge there's the idea that these people especially as immigrants. What's that? I'm just joking. Okay. Especially as immigrants. Yeah. So the idea that there's some like systemic crisis happening in these communities that somehow needs to be solved from the outside that we need to you know basically we got done we just got done calling them all deplorables during the election like they're all horrible people voting for this horrible person, um, and now we're all going in and now they're all victims and now we're going to save them from the outside. Like, I can just tell you, it's viewed in the Midwest and in the South as like, what the hell, man? Like, it's just not, it's coming across horribly. It's like the worst possible message. And so, I, and it's become like a very trendy thing to do. And, and everybody, everybody who lives there is fully aware that we all, that everybody here only cares about this since November 8th. It's like, okay, which logically means, right, the next time a Democrat wins the presidency, we'll go back to not caring. Right, that's what's screwed up. Like that's the problem. That's the it's the culture war. Like it's the con it's the fundamental conflict between the cultures. And so I just think we shouldn't. I don't think we should indulge it. I think it just makes things worse. Okay. Uh, Michael Miller, ZBI and PC Mag. Real short. Maybe. Thanks. Uh, you talked a lot about productivity and very interesting. Uh, we know that uh, the average person is spending 50 minutes a day on Facebook, lots of time on YouTube. TV viewing is actually video viewing is actually up, not down. Is are social media and those kinds of things actually impacting productivity in either of your views? Um, I haven't seen anything that makes me think that it is. Um, Except your daily life. Well, uh, Hello. I mean, maybe it's impacting Kara's productivity. Come on, <laughs> right? come on, um, come on, and that one, come on. Well, but it's yeah. not clear, like, the fact that, uh, like, like, to have it say that it's impacting productivity is saying that people are, for example, not doing the work and actually watching video instead. Oh, really? That never happens. What? Like, <laughs> come on. In, in mass? You don't, do you have children? Look, children, that's different. Than, and me. Okay, yes, right, and yeah, Karen. Yeah. yeah. Do you have an answer to this? <laughs> he thinks it's great. I think it's Snaps great. Snaps for all. I think it's great. So uh, Noah Smith, who's a, a columnist for Bloomberg, did a piece recently where he talked about this exact topic. And I think he, I forget the exact math, but I think he said if you assume, if you assume a diversion of like two percent of work time or something like that away from work towards like internet or other other activities, you basically completely explain this generational productivity slowdown that I mentioned. That basically you you you're able to reset the economics back to like uh, you know much higher traditional higher productivity growth. Um, so uh, if that's true, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that's bad because it's detracting from productivity growth. Um, although, presumably, that would also now be viewed as good because it's slowing progress, meaning it's slowing things like job churn and all the rest of the things everybody's worried about. Um, he takes a more optimistic view of it, which is, wow, that's great. We can have our cake and eat it, too. We don't have rapid productivity growth, but at least it's positive. It's not negative, right? So at least we're still working enough to make the stuff we need, and we're having a lot of fun. So. <laughs> So that, 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 that's the other interpretation. I'll, I'll let you decide which of those is. Uh, you uh, never get boring, Mark Andreessen, I'll tell you that. Anyway, thank you so much. This was really intellectually very stimulating. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 